You can turn in your Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 3. And we're looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. I'll give you just a second to turn there and we'll go ahead and read that. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the words of the one true and living God. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and hope. It's the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, again we come to you. Uh, asking that all that we do and think and say uh, this morning would be pleasing in your sight, that by your spirit we would worship in spirit and truth. Even now, Lord, as I preach and as everyone here listens, and God, I pray that you would be with me. I trust that you have been in preparation. I pray now that you would be in the delivery and that your sheep would be fed by your word, that all of us here would be blessed for hearing it and that by your spirit we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We ask in Christ's name, amen. All right, well, we've got another therefore in verse 1. And as we've said before, it's a good idea to see what the therefore is there for, right? So as we're moving through the book of Hebrews, we've got to remember uh, to keep the context together. We're moving through verse by verse, step by step, and we want to keep the, the whole thing in context. So remember that the author is reminding these first century Jews, most of whom didn't see Jesus themselves, about who Jesus is. You know, these, these folks, they're like us. They know there, there was a guy from Nazareth who was a prophet, who performed miracles, who was executed by the Romans. But time has marched on now a little bit. And, and Christianity is beginning, you know, the, the buzz of Christianity is starting to wear off. You know, their times are hard, there's persecution. They're coming to church every Sunday. They're hearing the word preached. But they're kind of like, I don't know, is, is this really worth it? And the author is saying, no, it is worth it. It is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And he's just finished explaining how worth it he is. That Jesus is both God and man. And that because he came and took on flesh to defeat sin and death and the devil, we are reconciled to God. We are free from bondage to sin. And now what's true about Jesus is true about us. So then, therefore, consider Jesus, he says. Not the way you consider getting a haircut or consider... Uh, consider one of many options, not the way you consider, you know, whether you're going to go to the movies this weekend uh, or, or, you know, consider waiting until next month to buy that thing you saw on Amazon over the weekend. The, the Greek word here for consider means to give very careful consideration to some matter. To think about it long and hard, to consider it carefully, to look at it closely. 
In light of everything I've already told you about Jesus and what he's done for you, the author says, consider Jesus. Because they're not. They're not considering Jesus. Not really. They're considering turning their back on Jesus. They're considering leaving and going back to the old ways. They're considering themselves. And really, they're not even considering themselves rightly. And that's exactly what the author wants them to do, to consider Jesus because of who he's revealed they are and who he's revealed himself to be. And so those will be our two points this morning. Consider Jesus because of who he has revealed we are, reflectors of God and rulers over what he has made. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Redeemed by him in order to do those things. And then consider Jesus because of who he's revealed himself to be. He, he is God. He is our redeemer. He's our high priest who is not ashamed to call us brothers. It's easy for us, all of us. It was for them, it is for us now. It's easy for us to get distracted from Jesus, isn't it? I mean, even as truly born-again Christians. It's easy to, to lower our gaze and to have our attention drawn to something else that, that just sort of takes us off course. Um, way I might explain that, I, I, used to, I used to have a motorcycle. I loved riding my motorcycle. And I was never one of those guys that just wants to open it up and see how fast it will go down the interstate. That wasn't me. I didn't really like that. that. That creeped me out. But I did like to see how fast I could go around corners, you know. I, 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 I enjoyed that. And one of the things you learn, right, if you want to go fast around corners, is you always have to look all the way through the turn. You have, to, you have to look where you want to go. You have to look all the way through the turn because if you just stay focused on that little patch of road that you're on, instead of all the way up there through that turn, you'll lose your line. And there's about a dozen things that could go wrong, all of them ending in you being peeled off of the pavement. Okay? So you, you have to look where you want to go. If you look where you want to go, you will go that direction. Look where you want to go and you'll go there. So you don't want to look where you don't want to go. That's the other thing, Okay. Because you, if you look where you don't want to go, you'll go there too. There's something called target fixation, right? This is a thing uh, where in a panic, you start looking at something in the road that you don't want to hit. You know, you see it pop up and then you just can't take your eyes off of it. And then guess what? You're going to hit the thing that you don't want to hit because you can't stop looking at it. You go where you look. We have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. You remember when Peter climbed out of the boat? Follow Jesus out on the water? Why did he sink? Because he started considering sinking instead of considering Jesus, who he was walking out to and moving in the direction of. So, how do we come by that? How do we consider Jesus carefully and keep our eyes fixed on him? Well, the first thing the author begins laying out here in verse one is to consider who we are because of him who he has revealed us to be. That's our first point. We have to consider, how does God see us? You ever ask yourself that question? How does God see me? It's a good place to start. He calls us holy in verse 1. Do you see yourself as holy? kind of weird, isn't it? You know, someone refers to you as holy and you're kind of like, they must not know me very well, right? I'm a sinner. 
doesn't matter. God knows you and he knows what he's done for you and he calls you holy. Set apart, consecrated to the service of God. If Jesus died for your sin, what else could you be but holy? What is true of him is now true of you and he is holy. God hasn't made a mistake by identifying you as holy. It feels that way sometimes, though, doesn't it? When you feel like an imposter, holy, that's what I mean. No, God hasn't made a mistake by identifying you as holy and calling you holy. He very much did it on purpose. It's not a matter of mistaken identity that he calls us, poor sinners like us, holy. It's a matter of transformed identity. In Christ, we're different than we were, aren't we? In Christ, we're on a different path than we were before. We're headed in a different direction than we were before. Consider Jesus because of who he's revealed you are and redeemed you to be. He says you're holy. Let me just ask you this on a practical level. What helps you be a better Christian? Thinking of yourself as holy or just, just being human? It's easy to say when we sin, well, I'm only human, <laughs> isn't it? I'm only human. It's hard to identify as being holy. We don't feel holy, but God says you are holy. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, in order that, he may, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's who you are. You need to know that. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, by the way. That's who God says you are, and if we think on that, y'all, and if we believe that, and if we embrace, embrace that, we will become more like that. We look in the direction we want to go, and we go there. We don't look in the direction we don't want to go. That is easier. It's easier to say, well, I'm just broken, you know. Just, that's, I'm just fallen. I'm just broken. I'm only human. It's easier to identify with that. But when we identify with being holy, we realize something that, that pains us, right? It slaps up against who we know we are. It, it slaps up against how sinful we recognize we are. And that's harder, the author of Hebrews forces us to lean into that. Chapter 3 begins with him commenting on who Christ has made them to be, holy, set apart for God's special purposes, part of a new and different family. He calls them holy brothers there. You see that? And of course, he's referring back to chapter 2, verse 11, there where we see uh, Christ calls us brothers. Brothers with Christ who was made like us in order that we would be made like him. We're not of the world anymore. That's part of what being holy means, being a part of this family. We're not a part of the world anymore, not a part of Adam's family, cursed by sin. We've been adopted into the family of God with Christ as our brother. He's our forerunner, we talked about a couple weeks ago, the founder of our faith, the pioneer, right? who's blazed a trail that we have the right to be standing on because of his sacrifice. 
And so there's a shift in our values because our new family has family values of its own. Remember who your family is. Remember whose you are, who you belong to, and whose name you carry. And we're, we're family here in this room, are we? You know, recognizing the blessing that that is. Be reminded of that. That, that God, being sovereign, as we talked about in Genesis, didn't we? Been talking about in Genesis. He knows what he's doing. He has you right where you are for a reason. Us, in this room, together. It's a blessing. We're holy brothers in the church. And sisters, don't exclude yourself, ladies. Obviously, that part is assumed, okay? But we're a part of the same family, adopted out of whatever family we were a part of, and brought in to be a part of this family that God calls holy, and that he blesses. And that's something God leverages in his word a lot, as a matter of fact. He leverages that in his word to help us recognize the gift we are to one another and our duty and responsibility before him. We all share in a heavenly calling, it says there. We're not even out of verse one yet. <laughs> we're considering Jesus because of who he says we are, and he says we're holy. He says we're brothers. And we share in this heavenly calling together and this responsibility to live unto the glory of God and to let our light so shine before others that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's what we're about. That's the family business we're in. It's part of this heavenly calling. And not everyone has it. Not everyone has this heavenly calling. Because not everyone is a child of God. But you hear that a lot today, don't you? We're all God's children. Don't we hear that? We can fact check that with God's word. In John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Okay? If we had to become children of God, what were we before that? Children of wrath. That's who we were. Ephesians 2, verse 3 through 6 says that. That's who all mankind is. But not those who God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved and brought into this new family with Christ as our head and Christ by our side. He has raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Consider Jesus because of who he says you are in him. This heavenly calling we share in together, holy brothers, not everyone has it. It's unlike any other calling, it's distinct, and it's only for those whom God has spoken directly to their souls, convinced them of their sin, and allowed them to understand the truth of the gospel and to receive it by faith. And for those of us that that's true, 
Because of that, we have a citizenship in a city, we'll learn later in Hebrews, that has a foundation whose designer and builder is God. And that's what the author starts to go into next. Okay? After, after heaping on them who they are and what he's promised to them as a result, he says, consider Jesus. And now we move from considering Jesus because of who he's revealed us to be to considering Jesus for who he has revealed himself to be. Point number two. The author has already talked a lot, actually, about Jesus being our representative before God. And this is something for his audience, this is not a foreign concept to them. They understand what it means to have a mediator. They understand what it means to need a representative before God. Moses was their representative at one time. And we'll get into that in a minute. But first, he says, Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. See that at the end of verse 1. Again, still not out of verse 1. But don't worry, we're, we're, we're picking up steam here. Okay? He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. An apostle just means one who is sent with a message, right? And we have some idea uh, what, what priests do. They intercede for God's people. So Jesus is sent by God and sent for the purpose of representing God for man and representing man before God. That's why it's so important to understand as, God, as uh, Jesus as both God and man. And we've talked about that some in recent sermons, last sermon especially. He is the bridge between God and man. And only Jesus can do that. No angel can do it. Animal sacrifices can't do it. Only God can do it, and he had to become a man in order to do it, and so he did. And now the point the author begins to make here is Moses couldn't do it either. Moses couldn't do it either. Moses did, he did lots of amazing things. He did lots of, lots of stuff, parted the Red Sea, uh, struck a, a rock with a staff and brought forth water. Jews thought very highly of Moses. So this may have been shocking to their ears when the author of Hebrews is laying this on them. You know, Moses was their guy. But now they're being asked to consider Jesus as being more worthy than even Moses. Remember, the theme of the book as a whole is Jesus is better. That's the argument that's being made throughout the whole book of Hebrews. And the argument isn't Jesus is better than Moses, um, so Moses was wrong. Or that Jesus had to come and fix Moses. All right? That's, that's not it. No, Jesus is better than Moses because he did what Moses couldn't do. Right? Moses brings the law, and the law is good. But Moses couldn't forgive you for breaking it. And all have. All have sinned against God's holy law. What we see here is Moses and Jesus are both faithful servants of God. We see in verse 2, Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So Jesus and Moses certainly are not at odds here. In fact, Jesus even says in John chapter 5, verses 45, or 46 through 47, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words, he says. Just as an aside, somebody, somebody needs to remind Andy Stanley that that verse is in the Bible and that it appears in the New Testament. 
You may not know who he is, but he and a lot of preachers like him insist that we as Christians unhitch from the Old Testament. Y'all, that's not me you know, taking pot shots uh, at, a, at a brother in Christ who, who I just have disagreement with. No, that's me warning you to stay away from wolves because that is, that is wrong. I don't care how long he's been preaching. I don't care about how big his church is. He's wrong. And it's better for him that a millstone be hung around his neck and him flung into the sea than continue to lead people astray. These things are inseparable, y'all. It's a sin to separate them. We don't pit law and grace against each other. We don't pit Moses and Jesus against each other. But we do understand Jesus is better than Moses. He's been counted more worthy than Moses, it says there, verse 3. And the author hammers this home because in Judaism, which they're tempted to go back to, Moses is the guy. And so what was, what was so great about Moses? We know the stuff that he did, but what's listed here, verses 2 and 5, he was faithful. The author doesn't say Moses wasn't faithful, but Jesus was. He says both Jesus and Moses were faithful to God. But whereas Moses was faithful as a servant, Christ is faithful as a son, verse 6. So he's more entitled, he's, he's entitled to more honor and more respect than even Moses. In the same way, he says, as an architect is worthy of more honor and respect than the house that he built. You see that in verse 3? For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And we are the house. We are the house. Living stones, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. A house being built by Christ himself, of which he made himself the cornerstone. Consider that. Consider Jesus. Became a stone upon which all the other stones could be built. We're all stacked in there together, stacked up together around him for his glory. We are his house, it says in verse 6, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and boasting in our hope. The house is the people of God. And it's always been those joined to God by faith. There's not two houses. There's never been two houses. That's why we don't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. There's only ever been one house. We don't look at ourselves as something different than Israel. We're a continuation of what God was already doing in Israel. We, we are the Gentiles, almost all of us here, that have been grafted into something that already existed and was already growing, that we were knitted into, grafted into by God's grace on us. We are those workers who showed up in the last hour and got paid the same as the ones who were there in the morning. You remember that parable of Jesus? God is faithful. Man is fickle. Give him every reason not to continue loving us, every reason not to forgive us, every reason to give up on us. But he is faithful. His steadfast love endures forever, and his promises are sure. So he doesn't have a contingency plan. His plan has been the same from the beginning, and it has been more fully revealed to us in the person of Christ, more so in Christ than it was in Moses. That's the point. Jesus is better than Moses. 
Moses was truly a part of God's people. And he gave the law. But Jesus wrote it. Moses pointed to the coming Savior. But Jesus is that Savior Moses pointed to. So again, it's not Moses bad, Jesus good. It's Moses good, Jesus better. Remember, that's the theme of the book. Jesus is better. It's Christ enlarged to show detail. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, verse 5 and 6. The ancients would have had a a little bit better concept of this. Um, There's, you know, you have a contrast here between servant and son. You see that, don't you? There's a contrast between a servant in God's house and a son. But you also see a contrast between the prepositions, right? Moses was faithful in God's house, but Christ is faithful over God's house. To get at what the author is getting his audience to sort of envision here, imagine that you've been invited to a swanky ball at a billionaire's mansion, okay? And you show up, and a servant answers the door. He's got a slick accent, tuxedo, right? But you're there to see the the family, right? That's the host. That's who invited you. That's who... Uh, that's who you're going to sit down and eat some fancy meal with, with stuff you probably can't pronounce. That's who paid for the decorations and the musicians and all all of the things. That's who you're there to see. So who would you show more honor to? The heir of that estate or the servant who answered the door? Now, we don't look down on the servant. It's a faithful servant. But who are we there to see? Who is worthy of more honor? Christ is worthy of more honor than Moses. Not not because Moses is bad. He's a faithful servant, again, in all of God's house. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So consider that, the author says. Consider Jesus. Consider him carefully. Give this matter a lot of thought. Meditate on this. Because if you take your eyes off them, you won't just be going some other direction. That's the point, okay? You won't just be going some alternative route. You'll be going the wrong way. Don't be fooled into believing if you go back to Judaism, you'll still have the God of Israel. You won't. That's what he wants them to know. This Jesus is who it's all about. This is what it's all for. This Jesus is who we're here to see. This Jesus is who finished what Moses started. This Jesus is who has done everything that was left undone. Consider Jesus because of who he's revealed you are in him, and consider Jesus because of who he's revealed himself to be. It's the point the author's trying to get across. Now, here's the thing. When we truly do that, when we consider Jesus the way the author intends for us to here, okay? If we truly consider Jesus, when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, where are we going to go? Where are you going to go? I I, I mean, I doubt any of us are, are flirting with the idea of going to Judaism as an alternative, Okay? But what, what is being at church here this morning keeping you from doing? 
there, there's your alternative. If it's not Judaism, it's something else, right? Is there something in your mind, some place you're, you're, you're rushing off to already, some place that you'd rather be, something else that occupies your mind? That's your alternative. That's, that's where you're thinking about going. Until we consider Jesus carefully, like the author says to here, and we're fascinated by him and overwhelmed with a sense of awe and love for him, those alternatives, whatever they are, will always look more attractive and exciting than Jesus. Until you capture the fullness of who he is and you meditate on those things, you recognize him for as, as glorious as he is. You know, I can't help but think of the last verse in that hymn when I survey the wondrous cross. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's where our minds go when we consider Jesus carefully. When he has our heart it's not until we consider who he's made us and consider his humility and heroism, his power and his majesty and his love that we see him for who he really is. And that's easy to get swept away with, isn't it? When our minds go there, that's easy to get swept away with. That's easy to focus on. It's easy to keep our eyes on that. That'll hold our attention. But if we've imagined Jesus as something less than he is, or just as a subject that we study, rather than a savior to be worshipped, I can see how that would get boring. That could get boring in a hurry. But Jesus is anything but boring. If you're looking carefully, if you're considering these things, he's anything but boring. And he's given us work to do, a heavenly calling, that we're all in together as brothers, holy brothers. May our view of ourselves match the description God gives us in his word. May we identify with those things God has set us apart to be. May we see ourselves the way God sees us so that we can be what he's made and intended for us to be. And may our view of Jesus match the description that we're given so that our eyes remain fixed on him the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for your son. God, I pray that you would help us this morning, all of us here, to not just understand these things, not just receive them as information, but that we would believe these things, that it would change us, God, I pray by your spirit you would work in us for our good, for the good of our families, for the good of those around us, but Lord, for the good of your kingdom, for your glory and for your namesake. We trust that you will and we pray expectantly that you will because you are holy, you are all wise, you are all good, you are all powerful, you are working all things together for your glory. You have a plan and even when we don't know the details, we trust you. So God, do it. In Jesus' name, amen.